0: Well, if you would this morning turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8 We'll pick up in verse 10 Um, Jumping right back in where we left off last week Uh, The nation of Israel um, has called for a king Um, Today we come to Samuel's warning Um, You might say Israel has um, begun respectfully Somewhat slowly they came to um, Samuel who was Regardless of which title we want to give him um, Prophet, he's a bit of a priest uh, He's acting as judge, I believe um, But they come to their their judge And they request a king um, If you remember, Samuel's reaction wasn't necessarily positive Might have been clouded by his own uh, misjudgments Regarding his sons following in his footsteps But also, um, very personally, I think um, Their rejection of his leadership um, Had to have... Uh, Restored with him Um, and God makes it explicitly clear that Israel's request for a king was out of line um, but they persisted and so God says he's going to give them what they want Um, verse 9 of last week's text now then obey their voice only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them so this week we come to Samuel doing what a prophet should do. He he speaks the Lord's words, all of them, um, to the people, and he warns them about the consequences of this choice. Um, it, it makes me think of a Sunday school teacher who had a five and six year old class, and she was trying to um, walk them through the Ten Commandments and and those warnings and admonitions from those texts, and. Um, she kind of had to explain that commandment, you know, to honor thy father and thy mother. Christmas was coming, you know, and she was kind of giving them their warnings. And, and then she asked, is there is there a commandment or warning that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And, you know, without missing a beat, a little guy raised his hand, and he said, yeah. It, it says, thou shalt not kill. Um, and so, you know, if nothing else, remember that this morning as you head to Christmas, kids, you know, and that'll, that'll keep you out of trouble. But uh, let's read our text for the day. Why don't you stand with me out of reverence respect for the Word of God. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, we'll pick up in verse 10. Um, we'll study through verse 22, but we'll just read through verse 18 together here. Um, verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers. Nope, I'm reading. And take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You may be seated. Now, as um, verse 9 clearly says, uh, Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of their king. Um, So what we come to first is kind of Samuel's review um, of the consequences of their demand um, for a king. What that rule is going to look like, how that's going to play out. Um, and there's a word that's going to frequently occur in this section. It's the word take, T-A-K-E. Um, ultimately, Samuel's going to ascribe to them a king, um, the king that they're envisioning. He's going to be a parasitic ruler. Um, he's going to take uh, the best from the nation. Now, again, we know we looked at it last week. God in his sovereignty and his plan, his eternal plan, had a king planned for Israel. Um, I would certainly say the, the, the real king of Israel is um, Christ himself. He is our king, and that is the ultimate fulfillment of this plan. But in the short term, I believe David was God's um, plan for Israel. Um, but it was not this kind of king. It was not this kind of monarchy, and it was not at this particular time. Um, Israel kind of goes outside of the will of God in this demand. And there's some things listed here in this review that are simply the normal cost of what you might call a central standing administration um, at the time. But then you come to verses like 14 and 15, and you're going to see a pretty predictable abuse of power. Um, It's just the way uh, the world works. I I think this is, in so many ways, the way kings were regarded at this time in history. Um, but Israel has said, their very own words are, we want a king like all the other nations. They don't want God's plan. Um, they want what everyone around them has. They want to copy um, the, the rule of those that they see surrounding them. And, and sad as it may be, as we look through this review, there are no redeeming features listed here. Um, there are only oppressive requirements um, by earthly monarchs. And, and so, as we study it understand this, Israel's not going to be able to say they were not warned about the consequences of their behavior. So first we come to conscription. Uh, Verses 10 through 13. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Um, He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, um, everything in between. Some to plow his ground, um, to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. We're calling this conscription, because that's really the right word. It's implying a draft, compulsory service, and, and not just for a standing army. Obviously, there would be a military draft, um, but lots of other roles are listed here. There're going to be laborers in the fields. There's going to be cooks and bakers and and perfumers. You know, presumably for some comforts to be provided to his leaders. Um, and so that brings Israel's women into play. And and eventually, we know that Israel's kings are going to multiply wives, and so. Um, It's not going to be good. They're going to do that, though, because uh, Israel wants a king like the rest of the nations had a king. Well, that was very, very normal among other kings and kingdoms. They would take whatever woman they wanted to be um, in their service. And so up to this point, we've got to understand that Israel had no experience with this. Um, Every time there had been a battle in their nation's history, um, the warriors had been voluntary. Um, in some cases reluctant but they had been voluntary they had never maintained a standing army and honestly when the nation was right with God things went pretty well um, like just recently, as we've studied, if, if you go back to First Samuel seven, um, they had that um, they were lamenting because the Ark of God had finally returned to the nation, but there um, there was no tabernacle. Um, and they were kind of, it was parked out in the middle of nowhere, and and they began to repent of their previous behavior and the reasons I believe why they lost the Ark. And they uh, there was a national revival that Samuel led, and and he was offering up the burnt offering, and in that moment the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. Again, they were having a church service. They weren't prepared for war. They didn't bring any weapons. They didn't have an army. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. That was the way God had structured their, uh, their kingdom, you might say, up until this point. But see, that kind of warfare takes faith. It takes dependence on god every time some um, enemy reared its head they had to wait on god to provide for them and so now what they're saying is we're tired of being dependent upon god every other powerful nation as we look around us every rich and powerful nation they have a big palace they have a powerful king they have a standing army and that king fights their battles and we want what everyone else has that's what they're saying there's a repeated mention of, of chariots in this text, but it's really Israel in their history never really numbered chariots. They didn't multiply them. They didn't use chariots for warfare very much because they just didn't have them. Um, but they did use chariots to proceed before a king. It was a part of his kingly finery. And so uh, the language here as it talks about chariots is, is really talking about conscripted runners who would go before a king's chariot as a status symbol, like an honor guard. Um, Two of Israel's worst usurpers in the years ahead Um, David's sons Absalom and Adonijah are both recording having done this Um, We don't have time to read those scenarios But they had men running before their chariots to try to show the legitimacy of their kingship Even though um, they did not have God's permission They did not have their father's permission um, to do that But this kind of conscription and royal behavior It's just what the world expected Israel wanted what the world had And I think this is one of those times when we kind of have to take a step back and remember what God did with Israel so often he does with us, and and Israel's mistakes and failures and even successes often have, I think, a picture uh, of of truth for us. And I would argue as you read this and you think they want what the world wants rather than what God wanted for them, it should make us think in terms of of the life we, as the bride of Christ, should be living right now. We, We don't operate according to the world's standards. We are not wrestle against flesh and blood. We shouldn't look to the government or a president or a a military, um, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all stand firm we too should trust in God not not any earthly um, provision on us. it doesn't mean those things are all wrong it doesn't mean we can't have a, a government and a democracy and an army that's not what I'm saying but what we've got to understand when push comes to shove we need to know that God is sovereign and he is in control and we need to have faith in him and him alone Those things um, cannot bail us out. They're not the answer to all of our problems. And so in a very real sense, God had told Israel that he would fight for them, and yet what they're saying here is that promise is not enough. Every other nation has a king and a kingdom and an army and power, and we want what they've got. So we continue with a review here. He says there's going to be conscription. Then there's going to be uh, confiscation. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and, and give them to his servants. I think the best of predicts corruption. He's not going to take what you're willing to give. He's going to take what he wants, and it's the very best of what you have, and um, give it to his servants, which in this case I I think is referring to his high-ranking officials. So uh, again, this is a very simple statement when you boil it down. The king is going to be at liberty to take the very best of what the people own in order to enrich his own and his key staff. Even when times are lean in in Israel, the king's going to get what the king wants. That's what he's telling them. Now, if you know your Bible history, uh, this plays out in some very vivid ways in the years ahead for Israel. Um, I, I think this text alone, I immediately think of Ahab and the seizure of Naboth's vineyard and, and that whole wicked scene in, in 1 Kings 21. And again, Naboth didn't just lose his vineyard. He lost his life in that case um, because of the king's wickedness. The king wanted the best. Uh, and the best doesn't always apply to fields and, and vineyards. You, know, you, you may remember when the prophet Nathan came to David and he started talking about how uh, this you know, parable this came, took the, the sheep of this man. And that, that was all just a picture of how David had actually taken Uriah's wife Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 spells out that nasty little history lesson for us. And again, it's really a reflection of this warning. God told them, this is what's going to happen. If you choose a king and you reject my leadership at this point in time, you're going to reap the whirlwind. You're biting off more than you can chew. And again, he doesn't warn them after the fact. He warns them before they even finalize the decision. And there's certainly more here. Conscription, confiscation, then there's, charges or taxation you really say he'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and, and give it to his officers and to his servants he'll take your male servants and and female servants um and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them in his work he'll take the tenth of your flocks if he's in california he'll take like 55 and um anyway you follow this all right he's gonna take what he wants he'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves even today again if you can't compare government to kings or whatever, but the reality is if, if, if you think the government is, is in charge and you look to the government to provide for you, understand the government's taking plenty. It's taking its share. It's taking more than 10% in most cases. And so that's the analogy that's being made here. The law of Moses commanded um, tithes to support the priests and the Levites, but there was never a provision for a central government. Okay, So what God is explaining to them is you're asking for something uh, that the Word of God did not support at this time. Uh, Under the judges, there had been no system of taxation, again, beyond supporting the priesthood. But you can count on the king taking more. He'd take at least 10%. Um, uh, of their crops but he's not going to stop there even again when times are lean he's going to take Israel's own servants um, and and workers uh, by young men I believe again it's implying the best of what they had the strongest the fittest Um, then you couple that phrase um, your young men and your donkeys it's putting those people to work on his behalf his work and what his work is going to be maybe roads maybe places to to put his army you know encampments or whatever but also you got to know it also employs a a palace and and royal finery and all those things the king is going to take what he wants the very most productive of their labor for his building projects and his things and and it's really all building up to the real key at the end of verse 17 he'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves They feared enslavement by a conqueror, but they're basically signing up for it by demanding a king. Conscripted labor um, essentially gave birth to the feudal system that many of us have studied in Europe um, beyond this point, and it was not a pleasant arrangement for the serfs, certainly, if you know your history. Um, But Israel's own kings are some of the very worst... Abusers. Um, David's son Solomon, First King 5, just listen to this text. Now, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. There were, they would be a month in Lebanon, two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over all the work, who had charged the people who carried on the work. And we could be quick to say, well, well, Solomon was building the temple. Yeah, he was building the temple, but he spent a, a whole lot longer building his own palace. He's going to take what he wants from the people. Conscription, confiscation, charges, and then last you come to corruption. In that day you'll cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The phrase cry out has appeared a lot in 1 Samuel up to this point. Um, probably most vividly if you remember when the ark's been lost to the philistines in battle and um, the sons of of eli hopney and phineas have died and the news comes back to the town and eli hears and he uh, falls from his perch and breaks his neck and the city cries out okay well they're going to cry out again in sorrow and grief but what god is saying is that this demand for a king because it's, it's out of time and it's out of place. It's not God's plan at this point. When you cry out because of the, the consequences of your action, I'm not going to regard your cries. I, I, won't, I won't hear you because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. You're going to be on your own. Uh, you're going to weep reap the whirlwind. Anybody here ever got outside of the plan and the will of God and and took something, and maybe it was even something that in the right circumstances might be good and right for you, but you took it at at the wrong time and the wrong way, and it just didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. You reaped what you'd sown, so to speak. You reaped the whirlwind. That's the kind of scenario that's being described here. Again, God had a king for them, and I I believe ultimate king is King Jesus. Okay, Um, He's not like this kind of king that they're demanding. God had a plan, and if they had only waited for him, he would have provided for them, and and he would have heard their cries. He's listening even now, but they're demanding something that's wrong according to the will of God at this point in time. In their nation's history, he's heard them before. Um, Exodus, we study this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. God heard them. Their cry from rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. This is the relationship that God had with them. This was the promise he had made to them. They were his people. He was their God, and he chose throughout the nation's history to this point he had chose their leadership he had appointed um, prophets he had appointed judges for them but now they're saying we don't want to wait on you any longer we want a king we we want what the world has we want to do it our way and all I'm going to say is, I won't camp out on this, but you know what? If, if you're going to demand an earthly king, or uh, whether it's a man or a woman or a government, if, if you want that to be your provision, you had better be really, really confident in the man of flesh that you're getting if you're going to trade anyone or anything for God's position in your life that's the reality and that's the exchange they're making. Jeremiah 22, 13 Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. And it's important that we understand something as we've walked through this, this section here um, verses 10 through 18. The picture that God has painted for the nation here through Samuel's warning n- nothing that we just studied is hyperbole. It, this is not exaggeration. Okay, um, That w- verses 10 through 18 to, to tell for us historically speaking how kings and kingdoms functioned at this point in time all God's saying is this is what you're really asking for take a step back think for a minute before you demand a king and realize what you're trading see they had been given a man at this point in time his name was Samuel he was God's authority in their life said, spoke through him and this is what we know about Samuel Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him when Samuel cried out to God when Samuel prayed on behalf of the nation God answered now Samuel wasn't perfect we saw last week his, his sons uh, well they didn't they didn't live quite like their daddy did and so uh, it, no man is going to be perfect but God had provided them a leader and he was a good leader he was God's man at this time his track record wasn't bad at all and yet they're saying we don't want him anymore time for samuel to go away we want a king we want a king like everybody else has a king give us a a standing army give us a palace give us all the royal signs of power and prestige we want to be like every other nation around us and they were dug in on that desire we hear the the review now we see the refusal and there are several words used frequently in this next section Again, I think we can probably all find ourselves here at one point in time, but we're going to hear we, us, our, kind of like me, mine. um, they're, they're, They're focused on what they believe they need, and God is no longer the centerpiece of their thinking. Again, this really is nothing new at this point in time. We've studied it from the beginning uh, of the period of judges. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and, and bowed down to them. Even in that they wanted gods like the rest of the nations had gods. They wanted statues and they wanted temples and, and they wanted idols. They wanted to fashion them with their own hands. They they didn't want to pray to a God that they didn't see. Uh, they didn't want to pray to this God that they had to have faith in. They wanted something tangible. And I think this exchange to a king is just continuing on the same sin. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Samuel, in this sense, is the last judge, and it's easy to see why. And the nation is making its demand for a king very, very clear. And I think we have to be honest about what's, what's happening here. Um, this is disobedience. Uh, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Now, it's easy to read this the way it's written. It says the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. But we've got to understand in the big picture, they're not just rejecting the voice of Samuel. And um, what's it tell us back in verse 10? It says, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. This is not really the voice of Samuel that they're rejecting. This is the voice of God through Samuel that they're rejecting. If you, if you take what you want, Israel, if you refuse to listen to these admonitions, if you demand a king and you, you just stick to it and you get what you want right now, you're going to pay for it. And that's what he keeps telling them. Maybe may remember this verse from last week, another time where they did much the same. Um, Psalm 106, uh, describing their time in the wilderness, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness to put God to the test in the desert. And what did he do? He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Again, and I wonder how many of us would be honest and say there's been times in our past where we wanted what we wanted. We didn't wait on the plan of God. We didn't wait on the will of God. We didn't wait on the timing of God. We got what we wanted, and guess what? It didn't work out quite as well as we thought it would. That's what's happening in this text. Scripture tells us that He gave them what they asked. And yet we have to understand that God loves us. God has a plan for our lives. God, God wants to do what's best for us and, and, and what's good for us and, and glorifying to Him. His system in that sense, we have to understand this, it takes time and it takes faith. But they want a king. They want greater security. They want a, a king who could be seen, a king with a palace, a king with a throne room, a king whose power could be um, and might could be measured in, in numbers of soldiers and chariots and, and forces of arms and all those things. They wanted an army that they could roll out in military parade and intimidate their enemies in a time of war. They didn't want to have to wait on God. They didn't want to have to slay some animals and have some sort of church service. They wanted to go into the office of the king, into his throne room, and march down that red carpet and say, King, our enemies have arrived. Go fight them. And he would flex his might and take out his army, and he would roll out and do their work. That's what they're saying. Now again, that sounds fine until you realize they're trading God for a man. Don't miss the change in the language here. When we began this chapter, and, and really in verse 6, it's probably fair to say that they made a request of Samuel to be given a king, but this, this is no request. You come to verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. This is a demand. And we've referenced this before, if we want to be fair to them. they had The, the Philistines were amassed to their west, Uh, The Ammonites were amassed to their east. The Amorites were scattered among them, among other Canaanites that continually rose up and and did wicked things in and amongst the the nation of Israel. They had enemies. I'm not saying that. They had plenty to fear. But really, more than anything, they've abandoned their fear of God. Uh, They were ready to exchange their fidelity to God for fidelity to an earthly king. Again, I would say in some form or fashion, we've all made this same trade, perhaps without realizing it. Uh, we've enthroned ourselves. Um, we've enthroned maybe our, our father, um, our presidents, our government, a pastor, a friend, um, a spouse, whoever it may be. We've enthroned someone. or We've even enthroned our culture. In, in our county, we've just enthroned a casino that we don't even have yet. It's the, the promise that just never fails. It always pays off. That's how our thinking nobody followed me on that. But anyway, we're going to trade God for something. And what I'm telling you, and what this text is telling you, is that exchange is never a good trade. It's never a good trade, because we know what we're trading away. Psalm 24, 8, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This is our God. Um so verse 21 31 the horse is made ready for the day of battle but the victory belongs to the lord you can have as many horses and as many chariots as you want but the reality is god is the one who gives the increase they're determined though to make this exchange and and to be fair they had some reasons okay this is disobedience but let's look at their defense for a moment this is their response but that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and and fight our battles Now if for a minute and we don't want to just be negative They they're certainly giving some justifications for their logic here Uh, They're they're really they're admitting up front um, A king it gives our nation influence. It gives us status Um, All the other nations have a king our king can do business with their kings. Okay Um, And they're certainly implying we want a king to judge us Um, Samuel has put his sons in as as the next round of judges and those guys were not they were wicked men and and they're like we don't want to wait on any more judges we we want a king, the king will judge us so we'll know who to go to he'll have a formal office and, and a standing administration and that'll be the way it works And then certainly, and I believe, the emphasis really is on this last one. And we want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. A a king with a standing army, a king with military might. Because this idea of waiting until we're squeezed and our our enemies at the gates and then we cry out to God and see how he's going to deliver, we're not waiting on that anymore. We want a king. Again, I, I think in fairness, these are not flimsy excuses, but here's the reality. Sin loves to justify itself. And just because you can justify yourself just because you can make a case for what you want just because you can defend your behavior or blame somebody else which is the most popular thing in our culture today um, just because you can do that doesn't mean you're right there's nothing right about what they're asking for they're forgetting one of god's most precious promises to them A second in Chronicles 32.8, actually one of their future kings helps them remember this later on. With him, with the enemy, is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. The people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. See, God is their king. God is their sovereign. God is their authority. God is their, um, their deliverer we know israel's past and we know israel's future at this point the nation is only going to flourish the nation had only ever flourished when they had allowed god to fight their battles and the very best of their kings only succeed when they too admit and believe that god is in control and they're yielded to him see israel's only seeking to justify its demand here It's, it's not looking at the nations around them and, and seeing things clearly. The, the list that Israel provides here has, has only the positives. There's nothing negative on their list. And they completely ignore uh, the negatives that Samuel has just shared with them. But we got to be honest, if you know your history at all, the ancient world has always been filled um, with stories about wicked kings who abused their power. And there were plenty of them at this point in time, too. It's not like every king who's ever lived was a good and gracious king. In fact, there's far more that are abusers than the other way around. Israel is ignoring the reality all around them in its rush to conform to the world. And I think we often do the same. That's why Scripture tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children. You you don't want to imitate man. There's, There's no man who's worth your imitating. And so this disobedience of theirs, despite their defense comes with a very predictable cost we see the doom here in verses 21 and 22 and when samuel had heard the words all the words of the people he repeated them in the ears of the lord now and we got to know god knows exactly what's been said but i I think this is almost like a covenant exchange Um, the people come to samuel and they demand a king Samuel um, goes to the Lord, and and the Lord says, tell them what's going to happen if they get what they want. It's not good, and he reads all those words to the Lord, and then they listen to that, and they say, who cares? We don't want to listen to God. We want what we want. And so Samuel, like in an official capacity, goes back to God and says, I know you know what they're saying, but let's just make it official. They've they've rejected your warnings and your um, admonitions. And so the Lord says to Samuel, obey their voice and make him a king. Samuel then said to the men of, the, of Israel, "Go every man to a city and um, here in a few weeks, that's where we'll pick back up at is, uh, I think Samuel's basically saying, God said he's going to give you what you want. He hasn't given me a name. He hasn't told me who it is. I, I don't know the answer to this. You go back to your cities and we'll have a big convocation somewhere down the line, and we'll anoint a king. But we really come to the crux of the matter that here is that Israel has made its demand clear. And whether they have a name or not, God, in this point in time, He's decided to give them what they want. Now, again, I've said it in the short version last week. I believe it to be true. David was already on God's radar. God already had a king coming for them. Um, David is only really significant to us because David is of the line um, of Christ. He foreshadows the greater Christ, the the true king, the Messiah. Um, But God had a plan. They didn't want to wait on God's plan. Um, They're ready to demand a king now. And all of this in this text has just been God's final warning. If you persist in asking for this, if you demand it now, I'll give you what you want, but you're not going to like it. You're going to reap the consequences. And so we've got to understand that this, this kind of impatience is really a form of rebellion. And again, if we're all being honest, my guess is we've all committed this kind of sin. We've gone out ahead of the plan of God. We've gotten impatient with Him. We've refused to wait. Um, we've manipulated circumstances to get what we want when we want it. And yet God's Word consistently says there's a blessing for those who wait. Um, Isaiah uh, forty thirty one. 31, But they, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We don't like to wait, though, do we? When we trust God, when we trust His timing, when we trust His goodness, when we trust His sovereignty, He provides for us in ways that we can't imagine. But when we persist against His will, He does often give us what we want. And then when we get it, it's not near as good as what we thought it was going to be. Now, let's consider this demand. For a king, for a moment, if you will allow me, this is not necessarily um, just written in stone here in the scripture, but I, I think Israel's history and and a, a full look at all this sure tells us this. Um, we've said this before: king and kingdom on God's radar. Okay? I believe David, he's not even been born yet, but God has a plan with David. David was a man after his own heart, and he's waiting in the wings, so to speak. Again, David's only significant, though, because he points to Jesus. Um, you, know, you say, well, this isn't a, a Christmas message. Well, it is, because we're talking about Jesus. Okay, But anyway, um, they get outside of his timing here. They demand a king, and so God gives them Saul. Most of us know our history that well all right david is god's man but they want a king and they get saul instead and and boy you know saul is he's everything they want in a king he's the biggest man he's the tallest man he's he's strong he's handsome he's all of those things that's what they thought a king had to be and so they get and their impatient leads to a poor but i would argue an immediate crown he's not of the right tribe he's not prophesied to have anything to do with jesus um and, and it doesn't take long for saul to get them into trouble Now, in my opinion, David's dynasty is a picture of God's grace. Despite their rebellion, God proceeds to give them his man. um, And and, um, David, uh, again, he's a man after God's own heart. He has a lot of warts. He makes a lot of mistakes, but his line eventually leads to Jesus. Okay, And so God redeems all of this, but we don't want to skip through too much history to get there. Just think for a moment with me. Think for a moment about Saul and David and their kingship. We know Saul's days, good days, don't last very long. And again, in in God's omnipotence and, I think, grace, he gives Saul every chance, even though Saul's not his man and his timing and all that. But Saul, it doesn't go very well. And while Saul is king, we know what happens. David um, eventually comes to um, the forefront, slays Goliath and does all that, and winds up having to run off into exile for 20, 30, a long time. Okay, How many... How many, raise your hand if you're with me so far. We know this history, don't we? Okay. Now, we read the Bible as if that's the only way it could have ever happened. But stop for a moment. Understand what we're studying here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. What God is saying is, this is wrong. Saul is not to be king. Saul was never God's plan. Israel's demanding a king before God's perfect plan. I believe David's the answer to that. But they want Saul, and so they get Saul and they reap the whirlwind and we always read it like oh david you know um, he refuses to touch the lord's anointed and that's true he does good there and he's a man after god's own heart and that's true he has a lot of redemptive qualities and he writes a lot of the psalms while he's off in hiding but you know what not everything about david's waiting period goes well we read it like it does but it's not really true In fact, I believe there's a lot of things that David developed while in hiding that haunts Israel when he does take over. He begins to multiply wives before he ever gets the crown. He he marries Abigail. There's another lady, I forgot her name, uh, Michael um, or Michelle, however you want to say it. I mean, he, he, he... There's a lot of women. I can't keep up with them all, okay? And he does most of that before he ever becomes king. So wonder why he would then decide he can have any woman he wants once he is king, and he takes Bathsheba, kills Uriah, and all that. I believe those are habits he learned while he was in exile. While he's in exile, we know, most of y'all probably know this, he develops an army, doesn't he? Most of them are thugs and brigands. They all go out to him. They run to him. They're men with blood on their hands. And here's the reality. He influences them, but some of them influence him. And he winds up, um, God eventually says, you can't build the temple because you're you're bloody in warfare. You've killed many, innocents in many cases. He goes to the Philistines for a while and, and marches out to war with them. It's not good. Okay, we read it all like it's the best. No, what I'm telling you is the best is this. There should have been no Saul. David should have rose to prominence. I believe there would have been a big battle. The Philistines would have marshaled out. David would have uh, strolled up to that battle with Goliath challenging the nation. And he would have been checking on his brothers like his father instructed him to. And he would have said, why, why is somebody not doing something about this? And he would have intervened and he would have killed Goliath. And in that moment of time, he would have ascended to the throne. He would have been Israel's first king. Samuel was still alive at that time. I believe he would have flourished under the the leadership and the mentorship of Samuel for some 20, 30 years. Jonathan would not have been dead in battle, as we'll eventually see. Jonathan was one of the best and the brightest of the nation of Israel. I believe his friendship with David was transformative. I think it was crucial. I believe he would have probably been David's um, commander of his armies. It would have all been good. But because of Israel's disobedience, because Saul became king, Jonathan's eventually dead. By the time David ascends to the throne, Samuel's dead. He's surrounded by Joab and Abner and a bunch of bloody men who wind up causing a bloody mess, as the British would say. Anyway, you aren't following me on any of this, are you? See, we read the Bible as if this is the only way it could have been, but what I'm telling you is this is not the way it should have been. And more importantly than that, this establishes us a pattern of behavior in the nation of Israel. They have this habit of not waiting for the king that God wants to provide for them. Can you think of anybody else that Israel rejects that was the rightful king that God appointed to redeem the nation? See, when Jesus comes, they want a king like the nations had a king. They want a they want a man of military might. They want someone who will take down Caesar. They're not looking for a Messiah. They're not looking for a Redeemer. They're not looking for a deliverer. Philippians two, five through eight, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, then being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that's the kind of king God appointed for us. But what did Israel do when Jesus shows up? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not a king like like you want. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of the world. And so as the New Testament clearly tells us, Jesus didn't come to be king like Israel expected. He came to die, he came to defeat death, hell, and the grave, to set right what was broken to atone for our sins. And yet Israel rejected him just as they rejected waiting on God in this text, and they got something that they should have never asked for. They reap the whirlwind. John nineteen fifteen. they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but his, but Caesar. Israel never quite accepted God's plan on God's timetable. They just kept opting for their plan and not his. But what about you and me? Any of this sound familiar? Who or what is king in our lives? Because I hope you're listening to the Christmas story this year and realizing that the the child in the manger is the true king, and you're only going to find rest when he's the king of your life. Luke 2, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And we've got to understand our history. Israel missed him because he was born of a humble birth and he was lying in a manger in the middle of nowhere to them. Bethlehem, of course, that was a fulfillment of prophecy, but they had stopped reading the word generations before. And so they missed the real king because they want a king like Saul. They They were repeating the exact same mistake that they've already made but what about you and me? What are we replacing what God has chosen to provide with? Romans uh, 3, this is who Jesus really is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. Faith requires waiting. Waiting. Faith requires trusting in God. Faith requires rejecting the world's plan and waiting on God's best. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Faith. If only Israel had had a little more faith in their God. If only they had waited for His provision. If only they had trusted it. And what I'm telling you is we all need the same kind of faith. But we, we have an advantage. We get to look back. We know who he provided. We know his name. We know his history. We know his legacy. We know what he's done. Uh, Philippians uh, 2, 9-11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Oh, friends, is he your king? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I pray that he has, and I pray that you'll respond to him today. As our musicians come this morning, let's stand and let's respond to him.